All right, everybody, welcome to Light the Fight text cast. Oh, no, podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> Heidi's been texting the whole entire time, so we were a little late to recording today, all because of Heidi's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Heidi was actually helping us out, trying to go through some of the cool messages that we got from you listeners out there. And so um, we want to start off our podcast today with a little high note. There's been some great wins from some people that have been uh, trying some of the, the ideas and tools that we've been throwing out there. And Heidi, why don't you just go and share a couple of them because I, I, I was really excited when I read them. It's always good to hear people benefiting from the stuff that we're totally, talking about. Totally. And it's also validating. So, okay, so maybe we're not that crazy. <laughs> maybe we're the good crazy instead of the bad crazy. Well, let's stick with that okay. for sure. Um, you know, we always tell you guys, hey, send us your questions and your DMs. Um, and we've added to it to send us your wins. And um, I want to thank you no matter what you're sending we love hearing from you. We love your con your comments on Instagram. Um, we love the DMs. We appreciate the emails. Uh, and like I said, I want to share a couple of these because I know you guys are probably having them, but it is reassuring. <laughs> um, so this particular person wrote, and it was a pretty long message that she shared. She kind of gave some history about her son, and she's been really worried, and she felt like, Every every time she wanted to talk to him or, or daily, regularly, there was a lot of blow-ups happening. And she really wanted to talk to her son about going to therapy. He's 16-ish. Um, and she can see these behavior and depression, depression in him. And she just, you know, it's kind of that sick feeling you have as a parent that you're like, oh, I know I got to do something but it seemed like every conversation was just a blow up. So she's been listening to the podcast and she, so she said, um, she let things kind of slow down. So she goes, we did the highs and lows and who the heck knows last night, which first of all, they all, including my husband grumbled about, but they did it anyway. And it actually went really well. When I was talking to my 16-year-old a couple days ago, I let the dust settle from one of our near-daily blow-ups. We were talking about therapy, finding and putting in place some coping systems so that we don't get set into such an explosive place because everyone in our home is suffering because of his behavior and our reactions. So anyway, I told him he should really consider therapy again just because of all the wonderful things that come from it. Mic drop. She says, so a couple days later, he came to me out of the blue and said, you know how you said that it might help to talk about things going on in my mind? Well, I just sat in my car and I just really talked to myself and I think it would really help. So I asked him, is this a way of him saying he would like to talk to somebody? And he said, yes. So she said that she's actively looking for somebody. Um, but just that being willing to walk away from from kind of a moment and let that kind of marinate is so against everything every mom believes in <laughs> because we want the answer right now we want to keep pushing we want to make sure they understand what we what we're talking about um so that was a really great win and the mom um expressed that she was just so relieved that this son is willing to, and, and we all know that's, that's a huge part of it. You cannot drag a teenager kicking and screaming 
and expect, I mean, I don't know, maybe, can you? <laughs> Legally, no. Well, let me just do this. Yep. That's definitely our applause of the week. So let me break this down a couple things. How she said she just kind of like, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did. So I listened to our last podcast, a little confession, my shame. I said like three times in, in like six words, just like I did right now. And I'm like, do not say like, like, like. So you guys can please private DM me and tell me how many times I say like in this episode because it'll shame me, but like not in a bad way. It'll almost be like shame from your friends, you know, the, the, the like kind of banter type stuff. It can be a good, helpful reminder. So please let me know how many times I'm saying like because as soon as I see that, I'll be like, dang it. I'm going to work harder I not to say it. I think you did just say it three times. I know, but I intentionally said it twice. <laughs> One time it slipped out. So um, I want to applaud this woman, and I wanted to just comment on a couple little basic things that she did. So she did the highs, lows, and who the heck knows. Um, Even though people were grumbling. Okay, let me be very clear with everybody. If you expect to try something new with your husband, your kids, that has to do with anything, the family getting together and talking about something. Plan on it being a little awkward at first. Plan on it um, being a little challenging, but just do it every single week. Provide whatever incentive or motivation you gotta do just to have people show up. They'll get used to it and you're gonna catch someone on a day where they're like, oh, you wanna know what I wanna say? Well, I'm gonna tell you what I wanna say. And they're gonna get it out, <laughs> then you... I would love it if somebody asked me how, what I wanted to say. Well, the problem is, you, they, they'd be talking in the parking lot for a really long time in Costco after that. No, but what, what this mom did was really good because she took a leap of faith. She said, hey, I'm going to try this uh, highs, lows, who the heck knows. It was a little bit hard, but quickly you could start to see that she's saying, hey, listen, our social nutrition is just as important, if not more important, than our meal that we just had, than our physical nutrition. If we can't connect once a week on just you telling us what's important to you, what was hard for you, and what things you're unsure about in your life, then we're gonna have a really hard time when we have real difficult conversations we have to have. We're not gonna have any practice. We're gonna be so rusty, it's gonna be frustrating. People aren't gonna be used to taking turns. They're not gonna be used to saying things how they feel versus blaming other people. So it's really, she, you're doing a great job on just starting that. Then the other thing that I was really impressed by, so she said she just decided to kind of slow down and let things happen. Organic is not fast. Natural is not created. So you set yourself up to have an opportunity to be a trusted person that your son could come talk to you by not having an agenda that he had to talk to you. So kudos, congratulations to this woman. And I just want to add those little details so everybody listening to this could see why it worked and also maybe to help her Sometimes we do things and it works, but we don't know what we did that made it work, so it's hard to duplicate it. So hopefully those little added tidbits that she did worked and you can implement it in your lives for all of you that are trying to do what she's doing right now. Do you want to hear one more? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, I got one, I got one more here. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the podcast. We had a rough situation come up today with our 15-year-old daughter. We responded instead of overreacted. We made statements. We didn't lecture. To have the tools to navigate this hard situation is priceless. We are listening one episode at a time, discussing, implementing, and then moving on to the next one. It's so tempting to binge listen, but we've found that it works better for us this way. 
I love it. I love it. Well, and think about it. Sometimes we watch an episode on Netflix and we're tempted or maybe fall victim to the temptation to watch just one more. And then you look at the clock and I don't know, let's say it's 3 a.m. And you have to be up early in the morning. And you're like, well, I've already burned the midnight oil. Might as well watch one more. But what does it do to us the next day? Sometimes it's information overload. Sometimes we get too much all at once and it doesn't have a chance to really sink in. Um, now, that may not be the best metaphor because with the you know, Netflix series, you may not need to let it sink in. But in these situations, it's very similar in the sense that it's good to binge listen, but it might be good to listen, practice, and then listen to the one after that. So I, if that's working for them, kudos for them. I appreciate that. That's really cool. Well, it's, I, I mean, I know that I tell you, I run into people all the time that are kind of sharing their experiences with me and expressing how hard it is, which I... I, as a mom, can can kind of say, yeah, it's not easy. And it I feel like it goes against everything that you believe in as, <laughs> as a parent. So it's like swimming upstream. You know? Well, it's not something you believe. It's hardwired in your biology. Right. It's not a belief. It's, I mean, watch the animal planet. Watch uh, a mother <laughs> tiger with her cubs. This isn't thought out. Well, and then it was kind of funny because last week I got together with a few of my cousins that I hadn't seen in a while, and we started talking about, you know, our grandpa and our parents and, um, you know, obviously great people. But there are things that kind of trickled through that we joke about as a family. Um, and now I see us in our generation having to relearn for sure and, and getting really open about the difficult things and it's and it's helping so it's great i forget what well it doesn't matter what parent because i can't see who it is anyways a parent one time said something like hopefully i don't beat this up too bad she said she goes, this isn't fair she goes, our ancestors our families my dad his dad my mom her mom they spent their whole entire lives and generation and generations building the cycle and now i'm expected to break it <laughs> She's like, this isn't fair. <laughs> she's like, how come? She's like, because I, I was telling her how it came about. I was telling her, you know so much more now. So because you know more now, we're gonna, you're going to be the one that's asked to break the cycle. She's like, well, that's not fair. Why couldn't I inherit like millions of dollars instead of depression? <laughs> right? I said, I good, point, good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's not fair. But in the same breath, even though it's not fair, it's a great opportunity. It is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, no one had podcasts before. No one had social media. No one had internet. No one had Google. So you got the tools. You got the capability. It can be not. It can be not fair, and you can be the perfect person for the job, like we said in one of our other episodes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what we have decided to chat about um, today in this in this episode is, you know, as we look at the stats. And we can see which we're able to tell which podcasts are listened to the most. Um, the shame versus guilt, you know, it, it does have the advantage of being our very one of our very first podcasts. So I guess if you're just listening and then you listen to one or two and then you're like, ah, these people are out. I'm never listening again. That could be happening. <laughs> so, but the shame versus guilt is listened to a lot. And I think it's kind of a mind-blowing concept. It was for me when I heard it for the first time. And whenever I share it with anybody, it, it just kind of takes you a minute to kind of process it. Because it's not what we 
naturally thought originally. And so a lot of my conversations that I have with people go back to that episode. And a lot of the comments and questions and conversation that we're having with people is around that episode. And so we have decided, we've talked about it a lot more and delved into it. So this episode is actually going to be called Shame versus Guilt 2.0. And there's probably a lot more. We, we might end up calling it Shame versus Guilt squared. <laughs> Because it, it's compounding. It's more compounding. <laughs> Not even 2.0 or maybe 18.0. Um, yeah, so so again, like Heidi was just saying, um, when we see the numbers and see that it's being downloaded, we're thinking, well, why don't we go a little bit deeper? I think a, a, another part of it could be that it's a very popular topic. You've talked about this before, yeah. uh, Heidi, that even though you just learned it a few years ago, um, with the introduction of Brene Brown's books, uh, her TED Talk, um, being on Oprah, all the things that she became popular for is really focused around shame. Two more important things, shame and vulnerability um, being the thing that, you know, brings shame out of the darkness. So, Well, and it's really kind of what we sort of based the name of our podcast on is lighting this fight. Yeah. Is putting light on these these issues. And... So I think that it's important for us to take what we've already talked about and then just build another critical layer yeah. on top of, of understanding. So, you know, it's, it's actually been 10 podcasts or so ago that we talked about our original shame and guilt. And just as a quick reminder, review, refresh, the main message that we wanted to get across in that first podcast was that guilt and shame are separated by our an, identif an identifier. Number one, do you identify that you did something, and so it's something that it it's something that you did and a it was mistake. a mistake, and you could you can fix it or you can get you know you can recover from that, or shame, which is that it's now your identity. What, whatever that thing is, is now who you are. And I think we even got a message from somebody today that said sometimes when she starts feeling, you know, she can have, she can be perfectly normal and, and functioning and everything. And then she'll kind of have a couple of days where normal hardships become so overwhelming to her that it, it overtakes her identity. So, she, so there's times when she, can manage the I did, and then there's times when it consumes her and it becomes I am. And yeah. so we both kind of, we, we all kind of experience both of these things. So I think that that, with that little review, um, I'm going to pass it on over to David to kind of take it that one step further of, of really critical information that I think will shed more light and maybe allow you to not be so afraid of this topic, but really embrace it. Well, because this topic is not new and because it was brought to light um, or popularized at least um, by Brene Brown, uh, the woman who did all the research and found out all the information about how shame, you know, is, is uh, how it affects us on a day-to-day -day basis and how it holds us back. I, I always want to give credit to Brene because I, I don't do what Brene Brown does. So, 
a lot of our listeners out there have heard of Brene Brown, and some of you may be loyal followers, read all of her books. Great. What we're about to talk about is not taking anything away from Brene Brown. In fact, it's just adding my experiences and Heidi's experiences to it. Brene Brown has even said in, in times when I went to her seminars and I've listened to her talk, she even makes that distinction very clear. Say, I didn't invent this information, I just connected the dots. I did the research on it. For me, I'm a therapist sitting across teenagers and parents. I'm practicing it on a day-to-day -day basis. So I have different experiences. So I might say things a little bit different. So if we describe something and you're like, oh, that's exactly what Brene Brown calls it, but she calls it something different. I, I just had a different experience. I named it something different. But what we're about to talk about right now, the reason why we're calling 2.0 of shame versus guilt, is it takes it a little bit deeper than um, other conversations you might have heard before. So helpful, hopefully, as I smile at Heidi, this information... <laughs> what we hope is going to yeah, happen. What we hope is going to happen is that... <laughs> So basically what sharing this information can do is it can just give you some more angles or some different ways to figure out where you lie on the shame versus guilt spectrum. So the first thing that came to my mind was that um, we talked about this before, that guilt is identifiable as I did, shame is I am. Now, the way we talked about it before, we said when you make a mistake and you feel bad, that guilty feeling could be a great motivator. Um, it's good information for most people because usually we think of guilt as, I remember I heard it talked about when I was a kid, like um, mom's guilt tripping me. And that was usually associated with mom is using what she knows about me to make me feel bad so that I'll do what she wants me to do. And so guilt was always seen as a bad thing. So if we identify... A manipulator, a manipulator instead of a motivator. Yeah. If, if we see guilt as hey, this is a motivator and this is a potentially really good thing, then it changes the narrative. It changes the story. For me, shame is a story and guilt is what's happening in real time. Here's where it gets tricky though for you 2.0 listeners now that have listened to the other podcast about shame versus guilt. When you are in shame or when you're, your story of shame is stronger than your story of, hey, I can do these things, I can get through it, and you're getting your butt kicked, you're losing the shame game. One thing that's important to recognize is that guilt is not always a positive thing. Guilt is not necessarily a helpful thing, but it can be a positive thing and it can be a helpful thing. But if you're consumed by shame, it can also be a validator that you're worth absolutely nothing. It can be the thing that takes, okay, I feel like crap, I'm worthless. People that are in a sh like losing the shame game, they will walk around looking for mistakes that they've made or mistakes that people think that they've made to validate not trying, not working, and not doing the things that they're capable of doing. So when I hear people say, hey, guilt is a great motivator, Guilt is a great way to, um, to, fight, you know, to, to fight your shame and say, hey, I made a mistake, let me do better. Yes, that's true in some cases, but I think it needs to be separated that don't think just because you feel guilty that that's a good thing. Because I actually had someone come to me and said, okay, this whole shame versus guilt thing, this is a long time ago. She said very specifically, you're telling me guilt is a good thing, but I feel horribly guilty for all these mistakes I've made and I don't feel good about it. And I thought about it for a second, I'm like, well, she's got a good point. And then I realized, oh, because she's feeling horribly ashamed. 
So if she's feeling horribly ashamed, she's looking for evidence to validate in a court of law that she should be crucified or convicted of being a horrible person. Now, if you're a healthy person, if you're working on personal progression, if you're seeing your reality as being a, a hodgepodge of errors, successes, losses, wins, then you will see guilt as a tool to learn and it can be a great motivator and inspire you to show up and be better because you feel bad about it. But do not think that well, when, guilt is always going to be a good thing. Because when you're in a spiral and you feel guilty, I mean, you can feel guilty for your shame, right? So, so it can go hand in hand and it can really amplify the situation. So I think that... You know, one of the things that I say often to myself <laughs> is that sometimes when we're in a situation that we can't change, we don't like, the only choice we have is to change our perspective. And so I think that this is a really mature, emotionally mature thing to be able to change your perspective about your guilt when you're feeling it. And so, um, you know, I don't know how you can... I mean, that's what you're, I'm sure going to tell us. I don't know how you can get a teenager to have a different perspective on their guilt when, when you're in that place. Well, the, the kryptonite to guilt, the thing that weakens guilt, is success. Wins. Better choices. So you need more time. If guilt is validating your shame, that means you're looking to have the story stay permanent. You're not looking to change your narrative. You're not looking, what I'm referring to is the story of your life, the story of your purpose, the story of your power, if you're capable of being a great mother, great father, employer, employee, employee, whatever it may be. Guilt can really work to your advantage and it can work against you. I just, I've talked to other people and I, and I realize that this stuff can get confusing. And so I just wanna make a little bit of like, a, hey, guilt's good if you're recognizing that it is capable of being a good tool to help you see reality versus totally being lost in the shame game. Now, to add on to this, just to add a little bit more 2.0 to our last episode, was when people heard me talk about the shame game, um, a lot of people connected with it really quickly. So yeah, we're always playing this game. Sometimes we win the game, sometimes we lose the game. If we have a lot of losses, meaning we feel worthless and incapable and we're not good enough, more times than we don't, then it really starts to lock in that story that it's, it's unchangeable. We can't do something different. But something that stands out in the shame game that sometimes it's either overlooked or people don't even know what's happening is that maybe some of you guys have heard this saying before. It says game recognizes game. Well, shame recognizes shame. What that means is people that have similar shame or just another let's just talk normal. People have similar insecurities. People have similar doubts. People that have that similar story that they're not healthy enough or they're not pretty enough or they're not smart enough or people are going to see that because they didn't do this that they're, you know, that they're struggling in life. You're going to be affected mostly by the people you come across that also carry that same shame. So an example to that is, it, is this like in that competitive like you see another like the mean girl thing like you see another a girl sees another girl that's cute and she's like oh uh uh you know I'm gonna I'm not, I'm gonna take you down or out or something like that like I I can't embrace this person I've gotta 
resist yes. them? Yes. Well, shame's in a competition for attention, and it wants you to give all the attention to it. If someone else is taking the attention from your shame with their shame, well, then off with their head. You can't have that. <laughs> it's like, hey. And when I say attention for it, it's some people with their with their insecurities aren't putting it out there on social media, but they're hoping, hoping that they can protect theirs. But what if someone else is talking about a shame that they can relate to? They either have to surrender and say, you know what? I'm glad someone else talked about it. Hopefully it can help me fight through mine. Or they have to double down on their story. They have to say, oh yeah? Well, let's use the, the mother losing her child to suicide example. You could talk about your shame of losing your son to suicide. And when you're talking to a room full of mothers, you may have nine, let's say there's 100 moms. You may have 98 moms sit there and go, oh my gosh, she's so brave. She's so strong. And they're thinking in their mind going, first of all, I can't imagine how I could ever live if that happened to my child. Then I wouldn't know what to do if it was by a suicide like hers. And then they get even a little bit deeper in that, in that shame sauce, or not shame sauce, in the connection. And they say, wow, I can't believe she's talking about something. This is good. She's doing something that I wish I had the power to do so they start to see you as a mirror of what they possibly could do. It starts to give them ideas about how they could talk about their struggles, how they could maybe confess things. But that's 98 of the women there. There's most likely gonna be two women there that are gonna be sitting there saying, I've been working so hard to protect my family secrets. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my past is gonna come up and it's gonna, you know, somehow infect them. Uh, my insecurities throughout my whole entire life, I'm doing better now, but maybe I've already ruined my kids. So instead of me sitting here and saying, this is courageous and brave, I'm gonna think things like, well, you know, I mean, that's only what she's telling us. We don't know the whole story. Or I'm gonna think things like, well, yeah, it's, it sounds really nice when you get up there and talk about that stuff, but I think there must have been other things going on. It can't be that simple. Those are the people who are going to discount someone being vulnerable. Those are the people who are going to say, I can't accept you facing your own guilt and using that as a positive tool to help bring light to your shame because I'm not even willing to do the same thing for mine. So when I say shame recognizes shame, an example that I usually like to use is, I don't know if any of you people out there listening to this have seen this. I've seen this with my own eyes. I was sitting in the food court. This was a long time ago, but I always see it for some reason at the food court. I'll look for a group of teenage girls, and those group of teenage girls will be sitting there watching other teenage girls walk by the food court. One time, this one girl of the group was dressed, well, put it this way, she didn't have a lot of clothes on, okay? So she was very scantily dressed, and I saw another girl walk by that was also kind of scantily dressed, not as bad as her. And this girl watched her, looked her up and down with complete disgust and said, look at that slut. Well, interesting enough, the girls that were around her, they said, yeah, look at her. And they started like, look, she shouldn't be wearing that. Those pants are way too tight for her. Look at how their, their chub goes on the sides. And they just saying the most hurtful, meanful things as this girl walked away. Now, the girl didn't hear it. It was far enough away. But they kept on talking about it. They kept on talking about it. And you could see the look in their eyes. Like they had this, like something was fueling them. And it was like this, this dark energy and vibe. And to someone else, they may say, oh, that's a little exaggerated, dark energy. I'm like, no, it was a dark energy that I was sitting next to. 
But what I was watching happening is that shame recognizes shame. That same girl, the other girls didn't say anything, but the girl that was dressed the most, how she was predicting the other girls dressed, was the one that had the biggest issue with it. Now, it also goes the other way. Game recognizes game. If you see someone talk in front of you and be totally honest, totally vulnerable, and they face their own personal issues, and you've been working on your own personal issues and your own personal progression, then you're gonna applaud. You're gonna say, wow, thank you very much. I'm trying to do that, and you just gave me some ideas how to do it better in my own, my own entire life. So we're finding ourselves in these two separate tribes. Certain friends, certain people, certain family members, you may hang around with them, and they're all about playing the shame game. And then other people you hang around with, they're all playing like the game recognizes game, like look at you, or how great are you? They're complimenting you. They're just like noticing all these little intricate details about you. And it came to my attention how this works. It's very simple. If someone is working on their own personal progression, for some reason they recognize and they sense when someone else is doing the same thing. When someone is hiding their insecurities and trying to protect their shame, the same thing happens. You recognize when someone else is trying to do the same thing. We have to be very careful not to use our information about shame and guilt to confuse us of the work that we have to do to remove the shame and use guilt as a positive tool. If you have shame and something makes you feel ashamed, you're going to have to work really hard to identify where it comes from, how it shows up, what thoughts it usually creates inside of your mind, and then what actions come out of those thoughts. If you can do all those things, I'm pretty confident that that day, if you make a mistake, you'll see it as a tool, you'll use it as a motivator, and you'll learn from it and you'll move on. If you do not do that work, if you do not read books, podcasts, whatever it is, trying to self-analyze, like, man, what does really trigger me? Then you're not going to ever get to a point where you're going to be using your life experiences to benefit you. You're going to be using your life experiences to bury you. Well, one of the things you just said was if you have shame or if you're feeling shame, then blah, blah, blah. One of the things that you said recently offline, off outside the podcast, was uh, we can't expect not to have shame. Whenever someone says, I was triggered, and it's, they're using it as a, like, uh, like a negative thing, I always sit there and shake my hand and go, wait a second. A trigger is a notification. A trigger is a call to action. A trigger is saying... Whatever you've been doing in your life, apparently you have some unfinished business because if someone even brings up this past experience, you get all worked up. You, you can't go to work. You, 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 sorry, bump the microphone. It stops you from all your progress. So it's usually associated that being triggered is a bad thing. I can tell you, as a professional counselor, if people weren't triggered, I'd be out of business. They <laughs> and, wouldn't even be coming to me. Be, and you'd be stagnant. You wouldn't want to. Why would you work on something that's really hard all the stuff you've been trying to avoid your whole entire life if there wasn't some sort of life-eminent, threatening, stressful scenario. So the depression you have that comes from your shame, the anxiety you have comes from your shame, um, whatever it is that comes from your shame, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to a party that if you go to this party, you're going to be feeling a whole lot better. If you don't show up and you, and you just push it away, you're never going to get used to your shame. 
Your shame triggers are reminders and they're invitations. They're not these horrible things. Now, they can be horrible things if we don't work on it. Right. And I think that that's right there. That's the distinction that I felt was, well, we both felt super necessary to make from our shame versus guilt podcast 1.0 is that two aspects. Number one, everybody has shame. And that's not, you don't have to be ashamed of your shame. Everybody has it. We need it. And, and you have said that before. And I have, there has been many a people who have written in to us in one way or another and said, when you said you don't have to be ashamed of your shame, that, that hit me. Everybody has shame. And, and this past weekend, um, I actually, I, we actually invited David to come speak it to our church group. And one of the things that hit me and I, and I, and I know a lot of us, um, and I, and excuse the direct quote, but so David said, and he was kind of talking about it. He, he said, uh, self, okay, maybe you have to tell me self doubt is not a sin. It's a necessity. So if we had to take and try to make a big blanket statement of shame, it really does equal self doubt. It's a story of self doubt. Self doubt is saying, I think I can't do this. Shame is there's a whole history behind you can't do this. It's a belief, it's a story, it's a narrative that you subscribe to. And there might be lots and lots of reasons. Like I've talked about, you know, maybe my fitness level. My kids talk about their academics. Um, my son talks about his athletics. There's, there's people who have been abused, let down, disappointed, betrayed. All these different things that feed this self-doubt and and the bottom line is that we all have these failures in our lives it's unreasonable and never expected to not have a failure and that's where you know we haven't even started going down like the resiliency path or any of these things where as parents we we're chronically want to protect our kids from any pain and suffering that we felt at any time in our life. Therefore, we, here we are like harboring our own failure and our own shame and our own self-doubt and telling ourselves, I don't want my child to have to carry around this deep, dark, horrible pain. And so therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shield them and direct them and detour them away from any possible place where they may have a failure. That's where we're going wrong. Boom. And that's kind of what we touched on when we talked about the cheerleader and savior podcast um, just recently. The fact is the problem is not in the failure. The problem is not in the disappointment. Like these are things that we cannot avoid. And we should not be trying to take those experiences away from our children. The solution is how to pick up from, from these things. And, and, you know, I'm going to let you list the one, two, three, four, 
But the very first thing is to acknowledge, I think, right, is the very first thing to acknowledge, oh, this is my shame. Well, yeah, I mean, when we talked about stories a little bit ago where shame is like this story, it's this belief, we all need a story. We all need to have some sort of frame of reference of why something happened to help us make sense of what we need to do about it. And when I said to your, your, your youth group, I always speak to the language of whoever I'm speaking to. And because it was a youth group in, in, a, in a church setting, I said, your insecurities is not a sin, it's a necessity. Well, sometimes I say it using the word shame. I say, your shame is not a sin. Your shame is not a sign of weakness. It's a necessity to develop courage, bravery, and strength. You just can't have one without the other. And then we could also add probably the word to the word necessity, the word opportunity. Yeah. You know, um, I, it made me think about uh, there's, this, there's this disease. It's congenital insensitivity to pain, um, CIPA. And I, I thought about this. Yeah, I, I thought about this too. It, it was interesting because I, I forget the exact number, but the chances if you have this disease, if you living a long life is extraordinarily low. And the reason being is that we need pain to live life. And people who cannot feel pain, they just, they don't feel it. You're talking about physical pain. Like physical you, pain. You get burned and yeah. you don't feel the pain, Physical right? pain. Everybody knows the analogy. It's like once a kid touches the hot pot, they get burned. They go, oh my gosh. Like they learned a valuable lesson in their brains. Is, oh, in order for us to survive, you can't touch that hot pot. But if you did not feel pain, if you did not experience shame, good luck relating to other people. Because the people with this disease, imagine how hard it'd be if you couldn't feel physical pain for you to describe to people what your pain was like by not having pain. The torture you would have to live in to not have a validating human experience. Pain is validating, but it can be troublesome if we don't use it as a tool. It can be really troublesome is if we use it as a story. I think, I think that obviously this is a really different way to, to look at shame. It's important to understand it at its basis. But then in order to really use it as a tool and to raise up from it, it's important to understand the power that it has to help you actually grow. Because we, we all know that without a challenge, you never grow above it. Without a record to beat, nobody's gonna beat the record. Without, you know, a motivation to do that. And so I think that the, the you know, it's, it's so tricky and, and so complex because it can either sink you or it can give you flight. And, and that kind of goes back to the perspective situation. Yeah, and, and being being vulnerable, and we'll probably do another podcast about you know the whole vulnerability thing, kind of do a follow-up with that. Being vulnerable is an expression of openness. It's exposing yourself to new experiences, new ways of seeing things. Um, I just know that when we're trying to win the shame game, when I say win it, I mean win it for the day, because for some people it's a daily struggle. When we're trying to win the shame game, 
and we're going into a situation where we're trying to figure out what's the best way for me to feel confident, to feel secure, to feel like I can handle this difficult scenario in front of me. It really comes in handy if we've put in the work to learn how to what I call best friending yourself. The relationship with ourself is our savior against shame. And here's the reason why it's our savior against shame. Imagine you have a friend. You've spent years by this friend's side. You've had such a long lasting relationship with this friend that you know them as good as anyone on the planet. Now imagine someone who you're kind of friends with comes and brings you this very disturbing story about your friend. If you know this person and you're really close to this person, this person's like a best friend, any negative criticism and hatred toward your friend that comes at you, it's not going to settle with you easily. It's not going to be something you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they do that. In fact, you know this person so well at the core of them, you're most likely going to be, wait a second, you said they did what? You're going you're gonna to listen to what's happening, but you're not going to entertain that this information from a person who doesn't know them that well is going to change your belief on this person. Well, what if you were the best friend of yourself? What if you're the person that could talk back, as we said in one of our other episodes, if you could talk back to your shame? So if you have the story of yourself that I am good enough, I am capable, I am worthy, I, I can fail and I can come back and do better next time. If you really believe that story, as a best friend would believe that story about you, then when shame comes calling, you'll be questioning. What's shame up to? How come right now when I'm about to do one of the biggest decisions in my life, I'm having all these insecurities come up? I like to consider this is how I personally do it. Anytime shame pops up in my life, it is a notification, it's a validating statement that whatever I'm doing right now in, that my, in my life is worthwhile and it's important. Otherwise, why would shame waste its time? The shame game that I've learned is that shame usually is strategic. Shame usually will come at the most opportune moment, oftentimes when you're very vulnerable. You could lose your son. You could go through cancer. You could go through smaller things like a breakup. And it just so happens when you're down and out, shame comes and whispers and reminds you that that's the story that should be your life, not just a moment that you're living. So best friending yourself, learning how to speak to yourself is very important and recognizing that when you speak to yourself with the story that gives you options, that gives you time to figure out your struggles that you're going through, shame doesn't really have a lot of power of you. Shame can't really say, shame can't make your best friend hate you just because they said bad things about you. Which is, is hard to do because we kind of know our, our worst weaknesses. This is where I feel like you have to use the and statement. Which is, you know, I was at yoga this week. And whoop, whoop. I know. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And um, I didn't know they did yoga at a chip cookie company. They did that <laughs> up front of the store. Easy, easy, Tiger. Like I, hey, if they did, I'd go get some <laughs> yoga cookies. That's, I mean, you know. That's you a plug for my, for my <laughs> friends over, sharing them over at chip cookie company. So. I love that place. Anyway, um, so I met yoga. And... The, she set an intention for the day or for the for the practice. 
And she says, I want you to think of something that you love about yourself. And I was like, no, don't love that. No, don't love that. Yeah, no, don't love that. You know, like, and she's only giving you like two rounds of breath to think of something that you love about yourself. And she, and she's prefacing this by, this is an indisputable love that you have for yourself. And I'm like, golly, what is it? And throughout the practice, I changed it like seven times. <laughs> no, actually, I don't love that about myself, you know. And I think that it is really hard because we know ourselves so well. But I kind of did the end while, while I was even in my yoga practice, which was, you know, I love that I am a creative soul. And yeah, I'm super unorganized. I get that. I do it all last minute. Yep, it doesn't come to me until the very end, but yeah. So I have to love that I'm creative and I have to love that it comes at the last minute because they come to you, because those two things go together. And so like it took me my entire yoga practice and I wasn't even thinking about my downward dog. I was barely even thinking about my breathing because I was like so worried about trying to figure out what I loved about myself. So all I'm saying is that this doesn't, it's, it's hard. My question to you, David, as we kind of end, is as a parent, we're dealing with our own problems and our own shame. And that's what the purpose of this podcast is, to help the parents evolve and change so they're going to be better equipped to help their child. But how would you... How would you tell a parent to help their child to have a better perspective on their shame and to use their shame as a tool instead of as, you know, a crippling device? Well, let me comment on your yoga experience really quickly. Um, I usually don't use words like this, but I'll say this in a way to make it like make more emotional sense. Um, You are doing a very good best friend yourself practice. You're doing a good best friend yourself practice because this is an actual thing that I have people work on for sessions, how to become their own best friend, how to become their own counselor, how to become their own coach. So in your, in your little yoga thing that you're doing, you were struggling going back and forth. I don't know if I'm great at this. I don't know if this is my pure love or I don't love myself about this. And then your best friend said, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't love all those things about you either, but you're pretty good at this. <laughs> right. Little reminder for everybody, what do best friends do? They pick us up when we're down. (laughs) They remind us of all of our amazing strengths when we're feeling weak. Um, They encourage us and motivate us when we feel unmotivated. And they also remind us of our bloopers when we get cocky. They remind us of things that we forgot that we need to remember. Our best friend doesn't care how much money we have. I love it when I hear celebrities talk about hanging out with their best friends. Like, I'm not a, be- I'm not a celebrity of my best friend. <laughs> they, don't want- they don't care who I hang out with, who I know. They're going to call me on my stuff because that's what a best friend does. They want us to be a better version of ourselves. But to add to that, even when we are a jerk and we're having a bad day, even when we do mess up, our best friend loves us anyway. And they'll call us out on it and still love us. Yeah. They don't, they don't care. They, they already knew that going in, <laughs> mostly. Yeah, best friend relationships take a long time to become best friends. So in those experiences, they weighed out that you have a whole lot more worthwhile than not worthwhile. There, there is 
you know, that unconditional love there with the best yeah. friend. And unconditional acceptance, which is part of that unconditional love. And, and so, yeah. But to get back to your question about, like, you know, how does a, you said, how does a parent help their kid? Um, what was it? How does a parent help their kid not? Well, how do you help your kid see the difference? And, and the difference the, in? Well, the difference between having shame that's pulling him down and cutting him off at the knees or the shame that's actually giving him a notification that they need to kick up their game. You know, before when we were talking, before we were on air, you kind of said, you know, the first step is to acknowledge it. I can't remember what the other steps were. I wasn't writing it down. This is a problem. <laughs> well, so, so we don't go too long and, and worry with this because I know we've been back and forth about a lot of different topics. To answer the question with how does a parent help their kid identify this, that was actually the purpose of me bringing up the best friend. The best friend is a story. Think about this. When I tell people, specifically young people, that you need to best friend yourself, and I explain to them what a best friend does, a lot of these young people don't believe that they have a best friend. So I can't assume that they know what an experience is like to have a best friend. Or maybe they've lost their best friend, so they're defeated and feel like they can't have a best friend. I just remind them, if you are your best friend and you go everywhere with yourself, then you can help yourself identify, is this something, like a call to action? Is me feeling bad about something a thing that I could use to my benefit? Or is it just validation that I need to give up? Using the story, are you being your best friend? I started out when I talked to teenagers, or just people in general, but specifically teenagers, and this is something parents can do. If your kid's like dissing on yourself, they're, they're saying, you know, I'm horrible this, I'm stupid this and that. Well, you've learned from our podcast, don't ask things like, well, why do you feel that way? Or what happened? No, no, because then you're going to get caught. Now you're going to be part of their problem when you're just trying to help. So stay on the outserts, let them get through all the venting, let them get through all their frustrations. When it kind of settles down a little bit and you can see that they have a little bit of clarity, just make a simple statement like this. Say, man, doesn't sound like you're on your own team right now. Doesn't sound like you're your best friend. I don't necessarily know how you can become your best friend, but does that make any sense at all to you? Usually after you've made those statements, you can follow up with a question because every time I've said this to youth, every time I've said this to people, people get it. They know that it would be much easier if you were on your own team, if you were your cheerleader, your coach, your best friend, and your counselor. So the problem is they don't feel that they can handle whatever the situation is. They're stressed. The solution is if they actually knew how to take their own advice, how to coach themselves, they would be better off and could figure it out a whole lot quicker and they get the confidence and the reassurance that they were a part of the process. If we as parents tell our kids what to do every single time, going back to our episode, you know, the, the more you, you know, the, the less you know, the more your kid learns. If we always have the answers for our kids, not only are we robbing them from feeling necessary pain to motivate them and teach them how to, you know, how to, how to face their shame, but if we don't allow them to go through this and figure out how to become a better friend to themselves, then what we're doing is we're telling them they're not capable of doing it. So we're actually creating the story that they can't do it. Or we're at least adding, maybe we don't create it, but we're at least adding to the narrative that there is a lot of self-doubt. 
Instead, we say, you know, what would your best friend tell you what to do right now? What do you mean? What would your best friend? I don't know. Best friend would probably say, like, I'm not that bad, and they love me, and it's going to be okay. And say, okay, well, would, would that take your pain away from you? No. Okay. Well, would you prefer not to have a best friend and a best friend not say anything at all? What would happen if you didn't have a friend and no one was saying those positive things to you? Would it be better or worse? Most people know. Obviously, it'd be worse. Okay. If you're going through it, you don't want to have to go through it solely alone. You want to go through it with the team. But are you on your own team? And if you're not on your own team, okay, now parents, let's think of some ideas that can help you be on your own team. Now you're a part of this whole thing with them. You're creating a partnership. They're saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to help you figure out how to be a better friend to yourself. Because right now you're kind of a crappy friend. <laughs> and, and I mean, I know I always say this. I think it's hard. I think it's hard because it, I don't think that being your best friend means that you have to add, to love everything about yourself. Best friends talk the most trash to you than anyone else. <laughs> right? They know all your mistakes. So it's a, it's a good thing. You know, when, when you brought this up to me, and it was a long time ago you brought it up to me, and I drove home kind of thinking about it, I started imagining what I looked like on the inside, what my little soul sister <laughs> looked like. And in my mind's eye, and this makes me sad to, to tell you this, but um, I saw her like this kind of slumpy, sad-looking girl and kind of hunchy and like sitting on the side. And I remember thinking, what would I do if I saw this girl? Would I tell her she could sit in the back of the truck while I peeled out and slammed her around, you know, or, or would I, would I offer her a blanket and tell her that she was going to be okay? And reassure her and get her what she needed and ever since that day that we talked about you you asked me if I was gonna be my own best friend and I was like um, no I hate myself right now well, well that's the problem <laughs> um, I started to envision this other girl and I wanted to be nice to her and for me, that's how my little personal narrative changed. I wanted, I, I didn't want her to feel abandoned. I didn't want her to feel alone. And I, I understood her. I knew why. I, I knew why she was sad. And that sounds like, I know that sounds kind of weird and occasionally I'll, I'll see her out of the corner of my mind's eye, you know? But it makes me stop and check on how I'm talking to myself. Um, and I think that that's something that teenagers and adults can, can really think about. That just being, I have a favorite quote that says, you know, be kind and gentle to yourself. <laughs> because we can all, we could all use a little slack. For sure. That's a best friend yourself quote. I love that quote. Well, since you opened up the can of worms, all right, you guys, you guys are used to hearing Heidi tell these deep, heartfelt things, but um, I'm going to say something personal. <laughs> I don't bleed. I don't need deodorant because my armpits don't stink. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a big, hairy American winning machine. 
that's a movie quote from Talladega Nights. If you ever, that's not for me. That was a joke. Okay. Um, when you were talking, Heidi, it reminded me of back when I was going through therapy. So long before I became a therapist, I was therapized. <laughs> that's a verb. Yeah, I, I just made that word up. Something. <laughs> but I remember it's probably around my seventh, eighth, nine, probably close to double-digit sessions that um, this thing happened. And for those of you who've been to therapy or familiar with therapy, you might have heard something called guided imagery. Um, it, it's it, it's a it's a type of way to unlock different emotions and to kind of to to retrace. The, the narrative, like where it came from. And then once you get there, you get to change it around. And you get to see it for what it is, not for your experience when you were a young child. And so, you know, the therapist, um, loved this lady, uh, I loved that her office was by the beach when I lived in San Diego, and she's very hippie. She'd walk in, take off her shoes, cross her legs, and like some Naga Champa incense. I was like, yeah, going back to the 70s. <laughs> but I loved her, great, great, great therapist. And she did some guided imagery for the first time. And make a really long story short, what had happened was, um, let's put it this way, a lot of my therapy was around my mommy issues. And what had happened was she did this guided imagery, so she's speaking to me, and I'm, I'm just sitting there on the couch, eyes closed, we're meditating, and I'm imagining myself walking around uh, the side of this path, and then going on this hike, and then going up this mountain hill. Well, after I noticed all these things in nature, and I got to this this peak, um, I noticed there was a little boy um, over there. And so out of curiosity, you know, I started going towards the little boy and she was guiding me through this, but I was kind of filling in the blanks in my mind. And then I get to the little boy and I could tell he was alone and his head was down. And when I looked at him, he lifted his head up, he's just crying and just broken hearted and sad. And um, she had said some things and like kind of for the little boy. And um, or what happened was what, before I got there, I was wondering, okay, something's wrong with this little boy. I could see him from behind. When I got there and he looked up, she was like, what do you see? And I was like, it's me. And I could see it as clear as day. I remember I was probably like around, gosh, five or six years old. And I remember my little bullheaded haircut from the 70s. Uh, early 80s and I'm like yeah that's my corduroy pants yeah this is me all these little details but I was crying and what had happened from that was I had said to myself just kind of intuitively it's not your fault and what was happening before that was I was crying because I felt like I wasn't good enough for my mom otherwise she would have chose me she wouldn't have abandoned me I wouldn't have had been raised by my grandmother I wouldn't have had to been embarrassed of my existence I was embarrassed that someone didn't want me, and so therefore, even when someone else wanted me, I still doubted and I still questioned whether I was really wanted or if I was just the service project. I was a sympathy case. But after that a moment when I looked at that little boy being me, and I told him, you know, it's not your fault, a flood of emotions. I mean, I must have cried for like 10 minutes straight. And then afterwards, I was looking at her, I'm like, is this a good thing? Or like, snot coming out of my nose. I'm like, is this supposed to happen? Like, what the? F and she's like, not normally this strong, but yeah, it, it happens. I'm like, oh, great. So, like, she was even kind of surprised that I came unglued like that. Point is, is that was a big turning point for me. Just like, and I'm just matching yours. I'm not trying to one up you, but I remember that very importantly because 
I realized where my story came from. I realized that I looked at my physical differences and so I could identify quickly how I looked different than my adopted brothers and sisters. I was always looking for where is my shame gonna come up and show that I'm different. When in reality, the biggest success I ever had was having that shame, living a life like that, going to graduate school, going to these classes, they make you go to therapy and you go to therapy and I got to face it because I made all those other choices. And once I faced it and I replaced it with a story that was actually accurate and true and correct, I was abandoned and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. My mom was a hot mess, 20 year old addict, mental health issues in and out of jail, whatever it was. Yeah, that was horrible and it was amazing at the same time. So for me, I changed my perspective to, I'm not good enough to, no wonder I didn't feel like I was good enough. Right. It just made sense. It, was like, yeah. it, wasn't even, it wasn't even a crazy thought. It was like, oh, of course I felt that way. And here's what's happening is that you used your empathy for yourself. I best friended myself. That, wow, that's kind of interesting. Because, you know, here I am, and I talk about this all the time. I talk about how, how powerful our empathy is in connecting with others. Didn't we do a podcast that says but, when you relate, it kills the hate? <laughs> but I guess what happens when you relate to yourself? I guess you're supposed to use your empathy on yourself. Understand why you feel like crap. And then take care, of, take care of it. Well, you could try having no empathy for yourself, no compassion, not identifying your shame, and then going out in the world. Oh, yeah, you're, you're going you're gonna to trigger a lot of shame games and a whole lot of other people. You could be a great parent, hardworking, tax-paying American that goes with every intent to help your child. But if you don't do that simple thing for yourself, your child may be on their own. You may not be able to help them with that. Right. Gotta go first. Gotta go first. Well, we got real deep in the sauce today. Um, well, thank you for sharing that story, David. Wow. Well, I always, I always get deep when I eat my favorite meal before the podcast. And today <laughs> we had poke. That's P-O-K-E. It's a Hawaiian. It means cut fish. Um, yeah, so I was feeling really good before the podcast started simply because it's a good, healthy ahi tuna in me. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate that. And thanks to everybody who is listening. We probably, um, you know, probably have to think about stuff for a while. I'll probably have to come and listen to this three times before I... <laughs> before we release it? <laughs> yeah, I always hesitate. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, I know Heidi is usually the one sharing the gratitude and appreciation for your DMs, your messages, just listening to the podcast. So I'd like to take a moment just to say, this is kind of a big deal for, for me because all day long I talk about these different types of stuff. And I get to see the, the happiness that are just, just the good connections that comes from people that are working on these different types of things. But I also realize not everybody can schedule an appointment with the therapist when they need it. So um, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for letting us know that it's worth your time. And it's, you know, it's important for us to have this feedback. And we wouldn't be doing this without you because we're doing it for you. So thank you very much for everything. And uh, as Heidi always says, uh, keep on DMing us. Keep on giving us some wins. And if uh, you need any added information, we can do plenty of 2.0s on any of our past podcasts as well. And, and, and I just hope this helps. 
<laughs> <laughs> Boom. All right. Till next time.